Now on Radio 3, Anna Fenton looks back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since the summer of 1997 in part five of 20 Years On. Welcome to part five of 20 Years On, the series where we look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since July the 1st, 1997. I'm Anna Fenton, and this week we branch out into Hong Kong's social scene and discover what became of those paratitis with their big hair and the astronaut kids who were packed off to school overseas. First, I set off to the Honourable Artillery Company in the City of London to catch up with Karen Luard, better known as KP as she set up for the Hong Kong Society's 20th handover anniversary dinner on July the 1st. Well, it's going to be quite a uh, magnificent occasion, and as long as the weather holds, please, please, uh, we have 400 people, including uh, Lord Patton and Lord Wilson and uh, Baroness Dunn, uh, and they're going to be coming uh, along. And Lord Patton is going to be making a speech, about a 10-minute speech, and I think uh, Lord Wilson will be giving the loyal toast uh, and we have the marching band of the Royal Engineers doing a beat the retreat for half an hour out in the front on the cricket ground. Uh, and then guests will be led into the main uh, HAC room by a lion dance, of course, must have the lion dance. Um, and then everyone will sit down and Patton will make a speech. And then we have um, singing by a fantastic soprano called Mary Jess, who, is, who won the equivalent of the uh, X Factor, the China equivalent of the X Factor in 2009 and um, she's going to be singing three songs including Summertime in Mandarin which will be absolutely fabulous. I think it's fair to say that Hong Kong people love socialising wherever they are and the Hong Kong Society is a great excuse for them all to get together with old Hong Kong friends and socialise and network on a regular basis and you do a wonderful job organising everything from uh, information sessions on the labour and job market in Hong Kong to just general good fun social events. So tonight you'll have 400 people. Altogether you have about 800 members. What sort of things do people talk about when the the old Hong Kong crowd get together? Well, um, they always talk about um, the good old days, Uh, you know, how wonderful Hong Kong was. Um, They swap stories uh, of uh, people they knew. the the unique the, the small little things that make Hong Kong so unique the junks the going out in the harbour on junks um, the clubs of course but um, it's really just uh, reminiscing with about the good the good times and um, and also I think there's a tremendous amount of interest in what's happening in Hong Kong now so uh, almost everybody that comes to these events uh, have a keen interest in what is happening in Hong Kong now great. Now, you and your day were legendary. I think in the, in the late 90s, on Sunday mornings, we would all eagerly look at the back page of the <laughs> SCMP for your social uh, out-and-about page, where you and your, your box brownie oh, yes. um, would do five, camera. <laughs> five or six parties a night. And if you weren't on that page, you were, you were in or out, according to whether you were on that page. Tell us about the social life in those days and what you got up to. I have to say, there are two people who's... <laughs> who spring to mind immediately when I think of that, that time, um, which was um, uh, Crystal Lee and Diane Butler. And I don't know whether you remember those names. Yes, but, I but do. I think a lot of people will remember because they kind of dominated the social pages. Um, uh, and uh, it was an extraordinary t- fun time It was because there was a, a lot of money around. Um, times were good. Um, Dixon Poon was uh, a rising star. 
and we're spending a lot of money on uh, big balls. Um, the, 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 the ballet ball was fantastic. Uh, Sally Lowe with the ballet, the ballet ball. It was all about balls then, It wasn't was all it? about balls. And it was all, I mean, you had to be going to the balls, the big balls, throwing tons of money at the raffles. Uh, you'd arrive dripping in diamonds and your fur coats even in the middle of summer. Um, and just lots and lots of fun, lots of dancing and lots of sort of partying, basically. Um, and uh, it was just a lot of fun. And, and Lang Kwai Fong um, was amazing. I mean, it was a really happening place, very much unlike today. I was in Hong Kong a few weeks ago and went and had a look at Lang Kwai Fong. What did you like, think? Uh, awful, awful. It's, it's, a, it's very sad about what's happened to Lang Kwai Fong. Um, but then there's those days of, of uh, California and Club 97 and all those other wonderful bars. And, and uh, much later, Vabene. Um, it was so much fun just to sort of um, party on in Hong Kong. I mean, everyone worked very, very hard, as everyone knows, but um, we all certainly played hard, for sure. Um, but I loved doing the, the, the photographs, and I took the, my own photographs, so I had a lot of fun deciding um, who was going to get in and who wasn't going to get in, that's for sure. Yes, I think it's fair to say you were feared and revered in equal measure <laughs> in those days. Think, I really don't think so. I never got offered a bribe. I'm a bit cross about that. <laughs> <laughs> So what were the name of your columns? Because you did one for Tatler and then you switched to SCMP. I did SCMP. one for Tatler, uh, one year for Tatler for Nigel Armstrong when he was um, the editor there. I think it was just uh, by, oh, it was Bystander, uh, which was their social pages, and I took the, the, the pictures for that. And then a year later, um, I think it changed. The first one was KP's Corner or KP's People. I think it was KP's People. But I, I do remember my first column because it was such gift uh, just a gift and it was uh, being on a boat out in the har- in the in the harbor with Gilbert Robway and Bill Nash and Pearl Lamb and um, or a few other people I can't remember who, who they are now and uh, the typhoon signal number three was up and uh, when jo- Joan Collins arrived the, the, the Joan, Collins, Joan Collins with only two people and she was wearing white and it was an evening junk trip and I think she had been expecting a, a gin palace and it was definitely not a gin palace <laughs> it was a little junk at the Aberdeen Boat Club bobbing up and down and Tony the boat boy who is normally super cheerful was looking very worried and he looked at me and said engine no good <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, we sort of went out of the harbour, went into South to South Bay, and the waves were definitely high. And we were all just thinking this is actually going to be a bit of a challenge, I think. And uh, Joan, even at that stage, had lips of string. <laughs> but we got to the to the uh, beach, but the, the, the beach, South Beach, dropped anchor, had a nice dinner, and then Tony, the boat boy, said, "I think we go you know, typhoon, we go." So we said, "Right." So we pulled up anchor, packed everything away, and got back out into the channel. And the waves were enormous, enormous. And this is before the time of mobile phones or radios or life jackets. We didn't have life jackets. And we got into the middle, and it was very dangerous. And then the engine, sure enough, blew up, and it just stopped. And there was smoke pouring out of the engine. Uh, we were getting quite close to the rocks. It was pitch black and it was rolling around. And um, phone, the Tony tried to tug the jack, the, the, the junk back by the our speedboat, but couldn't get anywhere. So he said, I go, I go, big boat, get boat, come back. So he said, great, go, go, go. So he tore off to try and track down a big junk. So we were left on our own in the junk with, with the John rocks, Collins, who had a major sense of humour failure. We, of course, were all smashed and thought the whole thing was hysterical <laughs> and were laughing and laughing. And she said, why doesn't anybody do something about this? And we said, don't worry, Joan, it'll all be all right. Anyway, the junk came back, towed us back into Aberdeen Boat Cover, and it was fine. And it was fine. And she certainly had a story to tell after that. <laughs> yes, I can't imagine she's used to that sort of treatment. Well, I had a story. It was my, great, my first story for the column. And, of course, it was picked up by the News of the World the next day. 
and it was Joan Collins survives terror, uh, terror, terror at the seas and shark-infested waters of the South China Seas. <laughs> it was fun. Wonderful. Now, you grew up in Hong Kong. Your mm. dad was a judge, wasn't yes. he? Yes. And your original family home was in New Zealand. Yes. When you look back on your days in Hong Kong now, what comes to mind? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, we arrived in 1964, so uh, and we lived in Caldecott Road and Pipers Hill when Dad was uh, junior crown counsel before he, he ended up as honorary co- uh, court of appeal and honorary commodore of the Royal Hong Kong Auxiliary Air Force. So, and my mum was a, a practicing barrister towards the end. But those early days, I, uh, very very clearly, very very hot because, uh, of course, these were the days before you had the tunnel, so we had to cross by vehicular ferry if we wanted to go anywhere. But we were living in, in Kowloon at first, and um, uh, there was an extraordinary curiosity with the local people because even even as short uh, a while ago as 1964, European women, girls, were still a curiosity. And my sister had long, very long, very pretty blonde hair, and everyone was always coming up and touching her hair, just, wow, touching her hair. Uh, and mine, although mine wasn't as pretty. Um, and then we, we were stared at wherever we went. We were stared at, and not in a menacing way at all, just p- very, very, very curious. And something that we t- it took us quite a while to, to work out or to get used to. Mm, yes, must um, have been a bit surprising. Um, and then there was the period of the boob bashers, the famous boob bashers of Hong Kong. I don't know whether you've experienced Oh, the, the frotterism. The, yeah, 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 you'd be walking down the street and then an, an elbow would just suddenly come out at the last, as you're passing somebody, and it would just bash you in the boob. It was a period of about four or five years. Yes, it was, it was in the mid-90s, yeah. wasn't it? Mid to late 90s. I remember yeah. that. And on the MTR, it was, yeah. it was quite an obstacle yeah, course. Yeah, it really was. Extraordinary. And these sort of phases sort of came and, came and went. But um, I remember there being, I mean, Sha Tin, of course, was just paddy fields. So there was a lot of countryside and gorgeous countryside and parks. And um, Hebe Haven, we had a tiny little junk at Hebe Haven, which was completely, um, there were hardly any junks there at that stage. And we used to ride horses at uh, the jockey club. Um, these by then and polo ponies because they used to play polo po- used to play polo when I first arrived. Mm. I mean, one of my earliest memories of Terry, Terry Thomas on a polo pony, which was quite an unforgettable sight actually. Um, so we would just go out to, to, to Bees River all the time, um, which was great fun. But just getting everywhere was hot because it was always mm. hot and there was no air conditioning. I do remember that as a kid. Um, and just um, the feeling of, I mean, Hong Kong was a very exciting place, um, lots and lots of fun. Everyone had fun. I mean, I was growing up as a kid with, with school, and unfortunately my school holidays didn't dovetail with the UK school holidays. So they'd come out and there'd be lots and lots of fun for two weeks or three weeks, and they'd go back to school and I'd be left in Hong course, Kong for six weeks on my, with my So sister. what elements of that fun time do you think still carry on in Hong Kong despite the changes? Um... Oh, I think I think everyone is uh, knows how to have a good time in Hong Kong. I think we always say, I'm sure we always say that ours was the last generation that really knew how to have fun. And we, we used to do things like um, go to the Star Bowls and we brought all these awards and we'd have 12 of us um, um, playing bowls at the Star Bowls and then we'd, then we'd be extremely naughty on the Star Fair on the way back doing handstands on the roof, I mean on the top roof <laughs> outside. Um, and against the gangplank and just uh, generally carrying on. So I think um, probably the um, slightly um, sort of naughty English schoolboyish type stuff doesn't carry on anymore, uh, which is not a bad thing necessarily. But um, um, I think um, the sense of um, being in the colonies, as, as I guess a lot of them did, that's obviously gone. That's so gone. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that special era that goes with it. So I think the kind of fun that people have now is more conventional. KP, otherwise known as Karen Luard. 
Back in 1997, the socialites in KP's columns wore their own frocks and jewels to events. But that's old hat now. Those classy ladies have been replaced by a new breed, the entrepreneurial influencers, who expect the big-name brands not only to provide the clothes, shoes, stylist and baubles, but also to pay them to show up to launches and parties. Peter Jung, formerly social editor of Tatler back in 1997, explains how social mores have changed and that this isn't considered the slightest bit tacky. But first, he explains the ins and outs and intricacies of being a socialite, then and now. Uh, well, after 20-plus years, uh, I'm currently a luxury brand strategic consultant. Okay, but back then you were, uh, you were the one to go out, I believe, and wear a tuxedo four or five nights a week going out to attend um, social events. Totally. I think it was, uh, uh, you know, back in uh, the 97, 98, uh, as a very young social editor for, for Hong Kong Tatler, a bit of a, like you said, social Bible, uh, the scene was, was very, uh, very active, and I was in a tuxedo for black tie uh, gala dinners, charity balls, uh, I would say easily four or five times each, each uh, four or five times uh, uh, each week, for sure. Now, Hong Kong's always had this sort of top level of very rich people that made up high society, and among them would, of course, be socialites. So in 97, what was the definition of a socialite? Um, I guess the, the definition of a socialite, uh, like what you said, I think they were from a, a, a certain echelon of society. Um, I think what I observed uh, was that uh, it was a very colorful uh, group of people. Um, I think what I thought was very interesting as well that that they were sort of the reference for a lot of the local media uh, on an aspirational level. And for example, I, I, I recall in the 90s, uh, a lot of the social scene, a lot of the uh, events or galas had a lot of very glamorous women. And, and I, I like to fondly remember them to be this this power tie tie. So uh, I think if we're naming names here, a power tie tie would have been Fanny Ma or Pansy Ho or Michelle Yeoh, somebody like that or Bonnie Goxon. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were they were the the influencers. They were the the ones that I think would make an event successful or or not. Um, And I think um, they really kind of um, I think ruled the style uh, influence. So so local you know press had daily full pages uh, reporting on the tie ties and the so-called ball circuit, I guess. I think there were so many events uh, every week and, and throughout the, the social calendar, and, and they were this phenomenon that, that I thought was, uh, that I think about um, very fondly, because they were truly a, a very glamorous uh, a group of ladies that, that really injected a lot of um, glamour and style to Hong Kong. Now, these ladies paid for their own frocks and baubles and, and shoes and things, didn't they? I, uh, yeah, I think in that day, it was uh, totally all theirs. I'm sure it was... It was, uh, you know, that, that, that was also one of the, the aspirations that you looked at them uh, when they arrived and that, that they did have the great style and taste to choose and to purchase and to buy and then to wear so beautifully uh, the gowns, the jewelry, the accessories. And, and uh, it was a real statement of personal style. Right. Now, the, the ticket to show you'd arrived was to be on the Tatler 500 list, wasn't it? But I believe now that's expanded somewhat to be the Generation T list as well. Yeah. I think, I think first of all, the, the, the list, the, the 500 Tatler list has always been the reference uh, to, to see if you're in or if you're out. 
Um, and it would change a lot from year and, to year. And it does change. It does change from year to year. And uh, for for um, I think uh, internal discussion purposes, that that there might be uh, reasons that you know someone is really not deemed to be on the list and and will be um, removed, maybe temporarily. Maybe they'll come back on uh, <laughs> a few years down the down the road. But. From '97 to to now, I think I think the the list, you know, some of the faces have changed. I think, uh, you know, in uh, pre handover, there was a, a very, um, you know, kind of a lot of um, colonial British expat families, uh, as well as Hong Kong Chinese families. Uh, now you still see the ones that that did stay in Hong Kong from '97 uh, on the on the on the more expatriate families. They're still there. But there's a um, lot fewer of them, isn't there? There is a lot fewer of them. I think, to be honest, I think we were also the generation that that came back. Uh, you know, in well, the well, you were educated in Canada, weren't you, and came back? Yes, yes, I was. Uh, I was in Canada for most of uh, my my all of my education, actually, since a very young age of seven, and I came back at that time, and it was kind of a time that. Um, was a little bit, you know, it was, I was told it was not a very good time for me to come back at that time, but in essence, I think it was the best time for me to come back. And, uh, and I think the list has changed because I think we've come back at that time and, and we've gotten older. Hopefully we've contributed to, um, the Hong Kong society scene. And, and I think uh, some of us are, are on that list now. Um, for the younger set, though, I think I think of today, I think uh, it's very interesting compared to my f- younger self. Is that I think they are um, uh, first of all, I think they spent a lot more time in Hong Kong than we did. We were the generation that probably were the astronaut. Uh, Children uh, flying back and forth, be it that we were educated in Canada or the U.S. And you were the first person way back then to use the term banana to me. I, I yeah, I was always you know being told I was a banana because I, I look I look you know yellow uh, on the outside, but maybe inside uh, you know white in the sense of the way I thought and the way I think. Um, and and it was something of a of a generation that we kind of all sort of were because you know we we didn't you know read or write Chinese as well as we should. We didn't, you know, speak Chinese as well as we should. Uh, but this generation now is very different. Okay, so give us a quick fast forward through the journey of socialites from 97 to today, because it's changed dramatically, hasn't sure. it? It's changed dramatically. Um, I think on a, on, a, on a nutshell, I think um, the, the previous socialites, uh, I think, lived in, the, you know, this is truly their lifestyle. They were very colorful figures. And they had um, enough money to support it. And they had, the, they had the lifestyle to support it, for sure. And, uh, and I think this was also the, the world that they, they, um, they you know, that they, they moved in. This was their, their lifestyle. And they were, we'd say they were trust fund kids and daddy paid for everything? Um, some of them, I think, some of them also were were very hardworking um, um, entrepreneurs. I think, in, in essence, you had people kind of um, really kind of uh, all across the board. But I guess back in the day before, it would be a bit more that they were in very traditional industries. You know, they were professionals. They were they were bankers, lawyers. Uh, nowadays, wow, I think the the generation today. Uh, this younger generation, I, I first and foremost think they're so entrepreneurial. Um, I think with the advent of, of social media, they can really create their own social image. 
I think, much um, stronger. Um, so how does this work? They start a blog, they get lots of followers, and then the brands suddenly decide they've got to invite them to their parties. Sort of, and I think in a way, you know, to put it very, you know, kind of simply, it can happen that way for sure. Uh, I think, you know, when, when if I compare, uh, you know, that a brand today, there is a, a level of, of, let's call them influencers. It's always such a hard word to, to you call them bloggers or, or something else, but they are influencers of that generation, you know, the, the, the sort of millennial 20s generation. And yeah, they're, they're, they're entrepreneurial. They'll, they'll know that a brand, uh, you know, might want their attendance. Uh, if they are invited, I think there is, you know, may, maybe some of them, not all of them, but but they do look for maybe a sort of remuneration, uh, and and yeah, they can make you know some money out of it. But I think what they are able to do above and beyond what a previous socialite that would take a long longer time is that you know with social media and their fans and followers, they can create their image um, and also change their image, um, you know, at lightning speed. Uh, now, how does this form. work financially? Because they wouldn't turn up in their own dresses and shoes anymore, would they? They w- And they get paid to attend these things. Yeah, I think for, for me, as someone that has seen the ages of, of this uh, from the former, yeah, I think this would be, you know, it'd be very... Um, Obviously, that they are invited by the brand. Obviously, the brand is going to support them, and uh, you know, make sure that they're wearing the brand's products, and that will require the brand to you know to lend or to gift uh, to the the young socialite. But it's now a given norm. I think compared to to um, you know twenty something years ago, um, so it's it's just a you know it is what it is. I think in terms of of the celebrity of of uh, of you know um, today and and they're the aspiration of of uh, their generation, but they're able to have full control of it. I think they're able to also dictate it. Uh, they're able to uh, really create um, that persona. Do we think this is good? I mean, I feel slightly uncomfortable thinking these people are being paid to attend a, a launch or an opening or a party. Gosh, I think, um, you know, it's hard for me to say if it's a, a good or a bad thing. For me, I think having having done this for, you know, over 20-something years, it's, it's an evolution. It's, uh, it's and I think it is what it is. But I think what most importantly, if, if, if it, it is the fact that um, hopefully the image level that they're exuding um, is quite complementary to the brand and that it, it, it creates a sort of synergy and it creates a sort of authentic image. I think what is not good is when I think it looks overly commercial. It looks you know, very obvious that that personality and that brand might not be a right fit, but you know that maybe it was a bit more of a, of a, a commercial arrangement. Um, that's, I think, on a marketing communication level, uh, that doesn't do anyone good. Peter Jern. And now to the shocking news. No one dresses for dinner anymore. I headed along Queen's Road to the classic Italian restaurant Gaia, an established favourite with Hong Kong's well-heeled cognoscenti. Run by the legendary restaurateur Pino Piano, he first arrived in Hong Kong from New York to run the hip Italian eatery Va Bene in the run-up to the handover. He recalls those heady days and explains how his top-tier clientele have changed in the last 20 years. They arrived here on the 13th of, um, of July 1993. And that was to run Fabene, the very famous Italian restaurant at the top of Lang Kwai Fong. Now tell us about those heady days. Well, it was overwhelming because when I left New York, the things they quite down a little bit in the early 90s, I arrived in the year 93. And... Uh, 
to come to Hong Kong and see what really was happening, it was incredible. I mean, there was parties every night, the people would go out every night. Vabene was one of the most popular restaurants in Hong Kong. We had the lines of people trying to come in every night. So but everything was happening. And was it crazy, crazy, drinking, drinking? It was a very crazy drinking, drinking. It reminded me of New York in the early 80s when people went out for lunch on a Thursday or Friday and the two or three martinis to start and then a couple of bottles of wine and then go back to the office and work. So that was that kind of craziness. Okay, now the super rich moved on from there and you moved on too. You moved on to your own restaurant. Of course. We have actually our restaurant, we have um, five Italian restaurants and then our companies got the chain of uh, Thai Western restaurants called Greyhound okay. and also a Chinese chain called Wang Kashar. Okay. So tell us how your clientele, your super rich clientele in particular, have changed over the years since 1997. Well, they do have changed because I think the, the, a lot of people moved on, a lot of people retired. So instead they come to the restaurant once a week, they might come once a month, but they do, they still do come because we've been open, in, um, we have opened Gaia for 17 years now, we've been open 17 years. So uh, it's a nostalgic way and they, of course I think we have a great cuisine and great service, that's why they still visiting us. Okay, now tell but us about the type of people that come now as opposed to 20 years ago. Uh, now we have a big, in, a new influx of young, between 30 and 40 uh, French and Italian community and they are the people actually they do go out and of course we still have our new wave of Chinese clientele from China educated very well behaved and quite big spenders Right, so what's happened to the, the old rich Hong Kong folks? Have they all retired? No, they, they haven't all retired I think they slowed down a little bit we're talking about 20 years ago. If they were 40 then or 50 then, they are 60 or 70 now. So, but they, they're still here. I mean, we see them once in a while. But right. our, our clientele has changed quite a lot. So tell us a bit more about what they order now. How have, their, how have people's tastes in food changed? Uh, they understand food more because, they, of, of course, they travel, you know, people, even Chinese people from mainland China, they travel a lot. So they really know what cuisine is. They, are, they don't pick and choose, but they know really what they order. And what do they like? Uh, usually expensive dishes, like good meat, good expensive meat and fish, and good red wines. Okay, now do they dress up like in the old days to go out for dinner? Um, no. In the old days, it was very much everybody dressed up. In Lanquefon... Uh, in front of a banner you will see limousine and the Rolls Royce and Jaguar and people used to come out in the evening attire, tuxedo and long dresses and really people made a big effort to get dressed. Just for dinner? Just for dinner. Or if they came out after a party, they would come to a band because we never closed. I mean, we, we used to close like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Really? So <laughs> we never the last person who went home. And so it was, it, it was different. Now I think it's a little more casual style. Uh, instead they never the Valentino and, and the Armani, now you have Loro Piana and, uh, and uh, LV. A little more toned down, a little more casual. 
Right. Now, do you think that these people are more sophisticated now than in the old days or less? Uh, it's different kind of sophistication. In the old days, they were the, the rich people, they were very sophisticated. Now they are more modern, more practical. Piano Piano. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when I check out how Hong Kong's favourite entertainment areas have changed, from Soho and Lang Kwai Fong to Wan Chai and Chim Se Choi. Hey! Do you remember?